0: Living as Exiles, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. When my wife Abby and I got married, we moved to Oregon. We are planning to stay there. We got a tiny little house, smaller than an apartment, right next to a 24-hour lumber mill. The backyard, like everything in Oregon, was completely eaten up by blackberry bushes. I'd love to have one now, but they're a nuisance in Oregon. They're like poison ivy, you can't ever really get rid of them. After a year of carefully clearing the brush and loading it on top of a rack I built for a little compact car, took me another 20 years before I finally got a truck, but after it was all cleared out, we planted a little one-foot-high apple tree and a peach tree to go with it. But before it got old enough to bear fruit, Abby got pregnant with our first daughter and we moved back to Missouri. We got a house in Excelsior Springs and we planted an apple and a peach tree. And the year we moved out of the city into the countryside, the peach tree had one tiny little hard peach. It seems like everywhere we've gone, we've planted fruit trees and moved right before we got to enjoy them. Now, if I could go back in time with the benefit of hindsight, I might have skipped the planting in all my other homes and planted about 20 of them where I live now. See, it was a mistake of wrongly estimating how long you're gonna be in a place. Like when you go on vacation, you really need to think about how long you're gonna be gone before you pack. It's one of the classic and most overused bad jokes in TV where either the rich person or a woman, never a single man, they bring 20 suitcases on a weekend trip. You know, a couple of hours is different than a couple of days, or a couple of weeks, or a couple of years. There were times when God's people had to spend time away from home. They spent 450 years in slavery in Egypt. Jesus himself was a refugee there for a couple of years. When King Saul was trying to kill David, he went and hid among the Philistines for a time. But maybe the most famous example was the 70 years that the people of Israel spent in exile in Babylon. Before Jerusalem was conquered and they went into exile, there were false prophets among the people. While the walls were surrounded by the Babylonian siege engines, they had assured, disobedient, wayward Judah that she could keep right on sinning because God was obligated to protect them because they were descended from Abraham. Babylon would never conquer them. They learned no lessons at all from what had happened to their sister kingdom, Israel, just a few years prior. But they were conquered, and they were carried away into exile in Babylon, and those false prophets were carried right along with them. And the false prophets assured them that they wouldn't be there long. They went right on lying and saying things like, This time next year, or in a couple of years, we'll be back in Jerusalem with the kingdom restored and Babylon chastened by God. The false prophets were lying to the people and telling them just a short stay and they'd be back in Jerusalem. Now, instead, the prophet Jeremiah sent them a letter from God telling them, This is what the Lord says, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. See, the prophets were lying to them, but God spoke to them through Jeremiah, not only telling them, How long they were going to be in exile, but how to live while they were in exile. They shouldn't plan on a weekend jaunt. It was going to be a significant amount of time. Peter uses this analogy of exile in his letter to describe how Christians should live. In light of Christ's return, and in light of our citizenship in heaven. So after identifying himself, Peter greets the Christians in Asia as exiles. It says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, sorry, of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, Peter isn't just addressing them like Paul does in most of his letters to the people of God, the saints, in such and such place. In Peter's address, he says, two important things about them. First, he says that they're the elect, and secondly, that they are exiles. Elect in Greek is eklektos, which means the ones that are called out or chosen. It's one of the many ways that the writers of scripture refer to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're the elect, the chosen ones, selected by God to be saved. Imagine God is sort of a shopper in the produce aisle, carefully evaluating each fruit before selecting them. How does he choose fruit? Ripeness? Sweetness? Firmness? Blemishes? Many characteristics are probably involved in the selection of a fruit, but how does God choose whom to save? Here it says, to God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father says that God the Father chooses according to his foreknowledge. What does that mean? It means that you were chosen to be saved long ago. Before you ever received Jesus as Lord, he had already picked you out to be saved because he knew something about the future. What did he know? How good you would be? How helpful you would be to the kingdom of God? Peter doesn't actually say here, but... Anytime scripture is unclear in one place, we can often turn to someplace else that speaks on the same issue to receive clarity. So on what basis is a person saved? The scriptures are universally and abundantly clear that salvation is by grace, it's a free gift of God, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. So faith, not good works, is the thing that distinguishes the saved from the unsaved. So God didn't foresee how good or helpful you would be, or how much you would contribute to the kingdom of God, and then decide to save you. No, before you were born, before the world was created, before time itself even existed, God knew that one day you would receive him by faith. You would respond to his overtures, and you would accept him as king. So even then, he set in a motion a plan that would end in your salvation. And not only your salvation, but your transformation into Christ's likeness. It says in Ephesians 1.4, For he chose us in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So the next time you struggle with questioning whether God could love a miserable wretch like you, think about this. Before he made the world itself, he made a plan to save you, to walk with you, and to bring you safely back to himself. Now Peter goes on to tell the mechanism of salvation. How are people saved? He says, who have been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So Peter says that you're saved by the Holy Spirit sanctifying you. That word sanctifying basically means making something holy. To Christians, it can mean a couple of things. One, sanctification is that ongoing process by which God changes you and shapes you to be more like him. A process that takes place across a lifetime. But it has a second meaning means to set something aside, separated from everything else, for a special purpose. Now, this is the meaning that Peter's getting at here. When God chose you, he set you aside for himself, out of all the people in the world, for a special purpose. And what is that purpose? Peter says, Chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So we've been called for a life of obedience to Christ the king. That's a fairly straightforward statement. But what what does he mean by sprinkled with his blood? In the time of the Exodus, when the people traveling through the desert had reached Mount Sinai, God communicated his laws to Moses. In Exodus 24 it reads, starting in verse 4, Moses then wrote down everything that the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice is what marked the people of Israel set apart, sanctified out of all the nations of the earth. By using this language, Peter is identifying the church as the people of God, set apart. You also notice that Peter is identifying the working of the Trinity in your salvation. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Set apart for holiness by the Holy Spirit. For obedience to Jesus Christ, God the Son. So that's the first thing to understand from this text. Peter is talking about the church, not just the churches in this region of Turkey, but the whole of the church, and that includes you. This church and you isn't just a club. It isn't a social event for Sunday mornings. It isn't just a charitable organization. All of you that are in Christ are a nation, a kingdom, a people set apart for God, chosen by him. And that sounds lovely, but Peter also says that we're exiles. The Jews were exiled numerous times from the land of Israel, and Peter's is using this as a parallel with our exile. Not from one particular land, but from our home, heaven, throughout the entire world. So, exile means A, living in a land not your own among foreigners, like Israel did in Egypt or Abraham when he came to live in Canaan it means temporarily abiding in that land for an unknown duration. Although the Israelites sometimes knew how long they were going to live there, or at least they should have, God told Abraham that the Israelites would be slaves in Egypt for 450 years, and through Jeremiah he told the people that they'd be captive in Babylon for 70 years. But in general, speaking of an exile, especially the Christian exile, christ was clear that no one knows the day or the hour no one knows when christ is returning no one knows how long our exile will be so it means a living in a foreign land b temporarily abiding in that land and c eventually leaving that land and returning to the true home when peter asks the christians to live like sojourners or travelers in exile he would immediately have called a specific way of living to the minds of Jewish Christians and to those who no doubt would have been familiar with the Old Testament. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, had given Judah instructions on how to live while they were exiles for seven years in Babylon. You see, an exile has two temptations. One is to believe that the exile is never going to end and just to give up. The second, though, is to believe that you know it's going to end quite soon and not make any preparations for how you're going to live. The Jews in Babylon were mostly faced with the second, that desperate desire for the exile to end so quickly that you never make preparations for how to live. In the early 2000s, there was a radio preacher by the name of Harold Camping. He told his followers that through Bible study and careful calculation, He determined that Jesus would return to Earth at 6 p.m. on May 21st, 2011. A New York Times article from a little bit earlier that year describes a couple, Abby and Robert, that quit their jobs two years before so that they could tell everyone to get ready for the event. They said that they'd stopped adding money to the kids' college funds because they knew they'd never be needed. Another couple, Adrian and Joel, said that they'd planned their budget so that the last dollar of their savings would be spent on May 21st. They weren't living like strangers or sojourners in exile. They were living like people who had gotten bumped for their flight and were getting on the next plane out of town. You can't really fulfill Jesus' command to be in the world and never leave the airports. The second temptation is integration. You know, you live a certain way if you think your exile is going to be forever, that there's no going home. Sometimes it can give you that can-do, do-or-die kind of attitude that can lead to success. It's what Cortez was trying to harness when he had his ships burned before marching inland to fight the Incas. You conquer or you die. Sometimes it can eradicate any sense of purpose and any sense of cohesion. That's what happens to a lot of nations when they're conquered and they go into exile. At the time of the arrival of the Spanish in Florida, all of South Florida was under the sway of a powerful tribe called the Calusa. They would had several bad run-ins with the Spanish, and through war and disease, by the time the Spanish gave control of Florida to England, there were only a few hundred left, and the Spanish evacuated them to Cuba. Where are the Calusa today? They don't exist as a people at all. Although some of the people of Cuba are no doubt descended in part from the Calusa, they were brought in from Florida by the Spanish, with no hope of returning home, they mixed with the locals until they ceased to be a people. Consider another example, the age-old enemy of the Israelites, the Philistines, the people of Goliath and Delilah. If you go to Chicago today, where are the Philistine neighborhoods? Where can you buy Philistine food? Where can you hear the philistine language spoken nowhere because when they were conquered by nebuchadnezzar they gave up their identity intermarried with the surrounding peoples and they were lost to history forever but if you go to that same chicago or new york or paris or rome or cairo egypt you will very much find jewish neighborhoods jewish schools jewish summer camps for kids and so on because for the last 2000 years of dispersal, they've been committed to retaining their identity as a people. When they eat the Passover, the traditional saying is, next year in Jerusalem. Rightly or wrongly, they're very committed to the idea of a return from exile. So as we go through this letter, Peter's going to talk about many components of what it means to live like an exile. But the fact that he compares it to previous Jewish exiles gives us a few things to go on already. And these principles for living as exiles, they often exist in opposite pairs, extremes to avoid. Do you know the Greek story of Scylla and Charybdis from Homer's Odyssey? Allegedly, there was a narrow strait that ships had to pass through, and on one side, there was under the water a monster that would make a whirlpool to suck ships down to their doom. But on the other side... There were steep cliffs with a hydra-like monster that would reach down and pluck sailors off the ship and eat them. He had to carefully avoid either side of the strait and shoot right down the middle. That's kind of what living as exiles is like. There are principles to follow and pairs of extremes to avoid. Now, the first thing that we need to do is identify with Christ and his kingdom. When the Jews were in exile in Babylon, they never came to think of themselves as Babylonians. During the time of the Roman conquest, several prominent Jewish people were also Roman citizens, with all the rights that went with that. The most famous one was the Apostle Paul. But the only time he even mentions that legally he's a Roman is when he appeals to his Roman citizenship to get out of legal predicaments so he can go right on preaching the gospel. All of us right here are Americans but first and foremost we're citizens of God's kingdom and our first allegiance is there. We were called to obedience to Jesus Christ. So are there areas of your life where you've given pride of place to being an American over being a Christian? Are there times when following the culture or even the laws of America mean disobeying Christ? If you haven't had a situation like that in your life already the chances grow greater every day that you will soon. And what will you choose? I can almost guarantee that if you don't mentally prepare yourself to stand firm, when the time comes, we human beings default to what is easiest, most convenient. So a Christian exile prepares himself or herself to choose Christ when the trial comes. But there's an extreme to avoid. Caring so much... For the coming kingdom that we don't pay attention at all to the land of exile. Jeremiah didn't tell the Jews to ignore Babylon, or to even hate it. He said to pray for the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We should recognize that America is a temporary home, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't care about it or let it slide into oblivion. We should pray and work for America's peace and safety and prosperity. America's been a safe haven for the gospel and an incubator for churches and missionaries for over 200 years, and we should long for that to continue. Secondly, we should prepare like long-term residents. The false prophets told the Jews that their exile be over before they knew it. But Jeremiah said, no, it'll be long make plans for a long future, build houses, plant gardens, and settle down. The Herald Campings of the World will tell you that Jesus is going to return at such and such time, so sell your house, give away your kids' inheritance, and sit on your hands, waiting. But Jesus was clear that the time of his coming and the end of our exile was unknowable to us. Jesus could return any minute, but he could return a hundred years from now. So if you're depending on Christ's returning soon to solve a problem that you've created through not planning ahead very well, you're not living like an exile, you're living like a day tripper. For instance, if you're not financially planning for your future and your kid's future, you're living like someone who certainly won't be staying long. So we should avoid, we should live like long-term residents, but the whirlpool we have to avoid is starting to live like permanent residents. We wanna make plans for the future here, but we don't wanna become so attached to the success of our plans here that our success becomes sufficient reward for us and we stop working for the rewards that come from the hand of God. Jesus told a parable about a rich man who one year had an abundant harvest. It says, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So, the point of the parable isn't that we shouldn't plan for the future or have any savings, but that we shouldn't be so attached to our earthly rewards or savings that we start to think about them as eternal and we substitute them for the rewards or care of God, especially to the point that we stop being generous towards God because we want to hold on to these temporary earthly rewards. So, identifying first and most importantly as a Christian, but not neglecting our duties as Americans. Planning wisely for our future here on earth, but not becoming so attached to our possessions and wealth that we can't give it up for God. How do we navigate the Scylla and Charybdis of the many aspects of following God? Sometimes it seems like it would be nice if God had given maybe an appendix to the Bible, something in the back that you could turn to where you could just type in your income and in inflation-adjusted dollars, it would tell you exactly how much to give and how much to keep in your savings account so that you weren't being either foolish and neglectful or greedy, on the other hand. Maybe the appendix could tell you in any and every situation whether this was the hill to die on where we must refuse to obey the laws or customs to properly serve Christ. It would make something so much easier, it seems, at times. When I start to think that way, I realize... But what I'm doing is wishing that in place of a relationship with the living God and the guidance of his Holy Spirit, I had more rules to follow. If I just had a nice list of rules, I wouldn't have to keep coming back to him again and again for guidance and waiting on him and his wisdom. But that, as programmers might say, is a feature, not a bug. That's what God wants. He's made it necessary for us to have to come back again and again to the very thing that an exile in this world needs most, Christ walking with them. Christ is a fountain of living water. We don't need a list of the properties of water to sustain us. We need to be returning again and again to him to drink deeply of the water of life. Peter ends the verse, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. That abundant grace and peace are an outflow of our communion with the blessed Lord Jesus.